0: Would you open God's precious holy word to Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, let's see, Hadavarim. which means these are the words. That was the original t- title of the book in the Hebrew. They shortened it. <clears throat> To Davidim, which means words, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text is the Septuagint. And when the when they translated the whole Bible, the Hebrew Bible, all of the Old Testament into Greek, because of something that's said later on about the middle of Deuteronomy. They they named the word they named the book, Deuteronomy. And the English version of that Latin word is is uh, the translator. Did I say translate to English? See, nobody knows. They weren't listening. They don't care. I'm alone. It's just me up here. (laughs) All right. There'll be a test. (laughs) <laughs> the Septuagint is the translation from Hebrew to Greek, right? And then from Greek to Latin, the word became Deuteronomy. Okay, I'm smarter than I thought I was. And, um, and that's dangerous. <clears throat> and so the Anglicized version that came from the Vulgate rather than the Septuagint Becomes Deuteronomy. That's why we call the book Deuteronomy. You should care (laughs) about that. And we'll see more about that in just a second when we get to verse one. But uh, it has been noted that the methodology of Moses follows The way that treaties were written based on the ancient Hittite method in the time of Moses. In all of the treaties of those days, there was a preamble, historical prologue. There were stipulations, there were blessings and cursings. There was a document clause and then there were witnesses. As you see here by the chapters and verses that are listed here. This is a pretty good outline if you want to think of it like, like a treaty, because this is a, this is an admonition from Moses. He's about to die. He can't go across the, he can't go across the river. He has to die. But he gives them this, uh, this final admonition. And then in the course of Deuteronomy, Joshua is officially recognized as the leader who succeeds Moses. Some have called this, a matter of fact, I have an old book. It was my daddy's book, one of the books out of his library, The Gospel According to Moses, book of Deuteronomy. It's an interesting take on a study of uh, Deuteronomy. But here, the preamble identifies the parties that are involved in the treaty. We see that in chapter 1 verses one through five, the historical prologue, the details of past relationship of the parties in verse six and then through chapter four and verse 49. The stipulations both general and specific are given here in the main body from uh, chapter five, verse one through 26 and verse 19. Uh, The regulations and the relationships, the blessings and the curses for obedience and disobedience, respectively, given in chapter twenty-seven, verse one through twenty-eight, verse sixty-eight, and uh, the document clause, uh, the readings and the disposition of the covenant are found in over in uh, chapter thirty-one, and then finally the witnesses. To make, the, to make it all binding is found in chapter thirty two. Now the whole the whole thing is thirty four chapters long, but we'll see how it works out. I like this outline pretty pretty well. I like it simple. Chapters one through four, looking back. Chapters five through twenty six, looking up. Chapters twenty seven through thirty four, looking ahead. Deuteronomy is a, in my view, is a is an especially rich study for us. You have to remember that in Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he speaks of the old Testament to the Corinthians. And he says, these things were written as an example for you. He's telling the Christians via his letter to the Corinthians. He's telling the church, the Holy spirit is through Paul that it's important to study the old Testament because because we see uh, scenarios and situations and we see the relationship between God and his covenant people. How God responds to uh, sin, how God responds to obedience, how God watches over his people, makes promises and fulfills his promises, gives them his word. All of these things are seen and this is an example to us. It's uh, very important really for us to, to consider the Old Testament, we do not consider the Old Testament for church theology as much as we consider it uh, historically and as and as as an illustration as an example of god 's relationship with his people. so then all that said let 's begin the study in chapter one, and it begins with the what I, what I call the highly relevant history and what is discovered here in studying the history is that disobedience to God hinders the work and progress of God's people. Here we go, verse one. These are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel on that side of the Jordan in the desert, <clears throat> in the plain opposite the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel and Lavan and Hazaroth and the Zahav. Now look at verse 2. This is Moses speaking. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Here's what he's saying. At Horeb, the people were 11 days away from Canaan. Now they'd spent about two years getting to Horeb. Uh, The spies came back. And the people doubted God and so God sent them on this wandering for the next 38 years plus the two they'd already been traveling which is the 40 years and an entire generation lost its place in the work of God in the promised land it wasn't until they all were dead including Moses the only, and there, of course Joshua and Caleb were spared because they were not among those who gave the bad report. Twelve of them went out. Ten of them gave a bad report. The two that didn't and who objected to that report were Joshua and Caleb. And of course they, uh, they continued on and Joshua becomes leader and they were permitted to cross over Jordan. So 11 days, they were 11 days away when through their disobedience, they became totally confused and refusing the direction and guidance of God. They couldn't figure it out on their own. 11 days, they were that close and yet they spent 38 years wandering in the wilderness. Verse 3. It came to pass in the fortieth year, the eleventh month, the first month, on the first of the month, that Moses spoke to the sons of Israel according to all that Yahweh had commanded him regarding them. The next thing we should note here is the importance of the word of God for the people of God. There, there's, there is no guidance. There is nothing for them unless God tells them. And so Yahweh speaks through his his prophet, his designated leader, Moses, in the fortieth year. It's interesting. Moses was about forty years when he began leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. He led them for forty years. I've been a pastor longer than Moses was the leader of uh, of Israel. Um, forty years used to sound like such a long time. It's not really. It's a mist it's 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 nothing. Moses spent that forty years, and now his time, his designated leadership, his part in the word of God, and the work of God are over. though so this is his his final speech to them. and he spoke to the sons of Israel according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Regarding them, this is the beautiful thing of Moses. He had that weak moment where he struck the rock twice and he was disobedient to God, and he, it cost him his ticket into Canaan. Yet still, Moses was the leader of the people because he never failed in any way to give the people the word of God. So now there it's a new generation, it's a new land. They are about to cross the river. And their feet have never touched this land. They've heard about it all of their lives. The promise of the land that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And these are the people who will receive the fulfillment of that promise as they cross over the... And we've already gone through Joshua some years ago. But, but to remember how they set up the stones of memorial, all that they did. Uh, and they re-instit- reinstituted circumcision and so forth. Uh, as they they get this fresh start in the land, the people and the land that is the covenant of God. So he gives keys to launching out into into new areas into fresh exploits and continuing to show the people of God. That God's word is always relevant. There is never a time that it isn't for His people, and there is never a part of the word of God that isn't important to us. We cannot, we cannot flippantly disregard portions of the scripture, it happens all the time. Um, you know, we can be guilty, even preachers can be guilty of cherry picking those portions of scripture uh, that seem to be easy and easily applied and agreeable to the people. But there's so much more that is just as relevant that may not be as palatable uh, to the people, but is every bit as important. We We can't leave out any of it. We have to see all of it, study it, digest it, apply it in our lives. God's word is relevant it was relevant when they were leaving Egypt. It was relevant all the way through the wilderness. It is relevant to the people now that they are about to cross over into Jordan. After he had smitten Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtaroth and Edri, on that side of them. So God gave them victory. On that side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses commenced and explained this law, saying, Yahweh our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. They'd been there about a year, I think, something like a year at this place. They'd settled in this one place that close to Canaan. But we've, what have we, we've been studying uh, all that was said in the book of Numbers, for example, and then uh, Levitical code that was that was given to the people, uh, details of uh, of their lives, both religious and civic, and familial. Uh, all of these things were were given, and this took some time to give these additional instructions for the people of God, so that so that they would be well organized and that they would be within the will of God. When they crossed over, they would have all of the regulations they needed. And uh, there are a couple of other things that that, uh, Moses will add uh, here. We'll see it in this portion we're looking at today. But finally, the time comes, you know, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. You can't just stay there. Even you may remember the life of Elijah and his ministry. Uh, He went to the he went to the brook that is called Kerit and God blessed him there and the brook kept drying up in the famine and the drought. He stayed there until finally God said, you just you know, it's time to move on. And he sent him to the widow at Zetaphit. God provided for him there. It was a very uh, uncomfortable place for him to go because it wasn't his people. And uh, he, he was told to stay with a widow, which, uh, which was a, a, strange, uh, a strange kind of arrangement. But God cared for both him and the widow and the widow's son. The time came for him to leave there. Um, he, he, he fell into weakness of flesh when he ran from before the chariots of Jezebel. But he was restrengthened by God who would never give up on him, his servant. Um, and he was put to sleep and then he was fed. He was rested out. And then finally God spoke to him in the still small voice said, I still have a lot of work for you to do. You're rested up. Now you're okay. Uh, let's forget about how you wanted to die and all that. And I'm not even going to address it. You just go from here and go on from here and complete your ministry. Well, the time comes when you're at one place and you're doing something because life, life changes for us. Nothing is ever static. The world around us is changing. Now the gospel never changes. The word of God never changes. God is unchanging. The same yesterday and today and forever. But how we serve God in this world is something that we must be open to with regard to the leadership of the Lord. There was a time when they needed to stay at that mountain and receive the rest of the instructions because they weren't quite prepared to go right across the river and into a land where they would be a new nation, a strong nation, a mighty nation, and uproot uh, all of the people who were there, defeat them, and take the land because this is the land that God had promised Abraham, and the deed belonged to them. It didn't belong to the Canaanites. It belonged to the Israelites. And they had filled the cup of wrath, these Canaanites, with regard to the way that they lived Uh, the lifestyle, the idolatry, and so forth. And so God used all of this not only to fulfill his covenant, uh, to begin to fulfill his covenant with regard to his people in the land, but also to judge the people who were there because of their heinous sin. Well, the time has come. Their instructions now have been filled up. Joshua uh, has an army that has been numbered. They have been organized Everything religiously, socially, uh, civ- civically, any way you want to think of it, they have been organized. Nothing was left out. You and I have studied it. We've looked at it in the in, uh, beginning of Exodus, but then, of course, Leviticus and, and Numbers, uh, the organization and the administration uh, that had been imposed, and Moses is at the end of it now, and so the word of God comes, and Moses is the one to tell the people, it's time to go and take your land. You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and journey. Come to the mountain of the Amorites, to all of its neighboring places in the plain, on the mountain in the lowland, and in the south by the seashore, the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon until the great river, the Euphrates River. See, and this is Yahweh speaking to his people. I have set the land before you. God. Owns everything. Everybody. Ezekiel quotes Yahweh. And he says. Yahweh says through Ezekiel. All souls are mine. All souls. So there's not a. There's not a person who ever lives. Who has ever lived. Who will ever live. Within humankind. There's not a person. Whose soul is not the property of Yahweh. He owns every single one of us. Not just that. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, he talks about how the spirit goes back to God who gave it. That is the essence of our life, the breath, the ruach, the the, the imposition of life itself uh, infused into the clay and it causes us to live. It's this it's this thing of breathing that gives us life. And when the spirit joins the flesh, the soul, the nafah, the, the, in the Hebrew, the soul, the sukkos in the Greek, the psyche, the emotional man is formed. God owns all of that. And within the soul, there, there are these things like emotions and conscience, and that, you can go on and on and on about how that's subdivided uh, within the reality and essence of a human. God made it that way. God owns it. He is absolutely sovereign. He is the one who made us and he is the one who does with us as he sees fit. Here, way back then, in that case, God says to his people, this is my land. I can do with it what I want to. I'm giving it to you. I allow it to paraphrase Two and a half books of the Old Testament, I allowed the Canaanites to settle it, to clear it, and uh, to reveal the uh, fertility of it, the, the productivity of it. But in, but in their prosperity through the land, they became uh, grievous, uh, idolatrous in, uh, in sin, they, uh, the sinners. And God knew that they were they were so steeped, immersed in their idolatry, that there was nothing left for them but displacement and destruction. So here come the Israelites. It's God's land. God says, I have set the land before you. God did all of that. I say all that because, you know, you you see even today the little nation of Israel which is not occupying any part of a portion of what God gave Abraham but this little sliver of land that is part of the land that is theirs of course the city of Jerusalem and the, the Gentiles are always demanding and commanding what happens to Jerusalem. That was prophesied. So Jerusalem has become this this millstone this this burdensome rock uh, around the gentiles just like the prophet said it said it would so now in these days as they always have the gentiles the nations are arguing over who should be where and who should own what in the middle east and especially with regard to Israel and Jerusalem and we have this united nations who never ever side with Israel? You have a you have a massive rocket attack that is unprovoked upon the innocent people, the citizens, the children, the women of Israel. Israel has no choice but to respond and and counterattack, and Israel is condemned for self-defense. Well, it just shows you uh, the, the activity of Satan. But further than that, it shows you that God is the owner of this. During all of this time, there's all this argument about who can say what is to be done in this land. Let me tell you, here is Yahweh. It's mine. I have set the land before you. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh who does these things. Come and possess the land which Yahweh swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them and their descendants after them. So this is the irrevocable promise of God. Even in the days of Solomon, they never have enjoyed the complete expansive uh, settlement of the land of promise that God promised. All of it. They, they've never settled at the entire and complete borders. That God promised to Abraham way back there. They've never enjoyed that completely. Part of that is because of the disobedience of God's own people. They could have taken it, but they didn't. They, I don't know, just selfish desires, whatever. But the one who will finally fulfill it and force the issue is the Christ of God, the son of David, Who sits on the throne of David, and he comes and he is the only one who can bring peace to Jerusalem. And when he comes in those thousand years of his reign, he will make sure that Israel has its its extended and complete and absolute borders. The land will belong to Israel. It'll be a wonderful day. It is because way back and all the way through time, Yahweh has said, I have set the land before you come and possess the land. And they will. Now, they've partially possessed it here and a little bit possessed it there and, and so forth. But not completely until Christ comes. That's why we're admonished in the Old Testament. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Whenever we are told that, we're, we're being told, pray for the coming of Messiah. Messiah. Pray for the son of David to be established on the throne of David in Jerusalem from which he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. And the nations will come and bow down before him and worship him. That day is coming. I think maybe not too far away. Then there's leadership and growth. Still necessary to uh, fill in the blanks for the people for their sake. Verse 9 and following it. And I said to you at that time, saying, I cannot carry you alone. Yahweh, your God, has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as the stars of the heavens in abundance. Yahweh, the God of our fathers, our forefathers, added to you a thousandfold as many as you are. And may he bless you as he spoke concerning you. How can I bear your trouble, your burden, and your strife all by myself? Well, he could not. No single person could. He's he's blessing God here for how God has just continued to multiply the people. While they were enslaved, they were multiplied. They emerged as a great nation. Millions of them. Hundreds of thousands and even millions of them. And they continue to grow. And they have a mighty army. And uh, it's a mobile army. And it's a mobile nation that's about to step right across uh, this river. And so the, 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 the expansion of, of the tribes goes as far as one could see uh, as they were readying themselves to cross the Jordan and go over into the land of Canaan. And naturally the old man, Moses, would ask the question, how, how can I, you know, he was 40 when he left. He was, he spent 40 years out there to himself. Then he came back, what was he, 80? Now he's 40 years, 40 years leading. He's 120 years old. He don't feel too good, you know? He, I don't, I understand. He, 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 he did things as a young man and, you know, he was a warrior and, His knees hurt. I understand that. His shoulder hurts. I understand that completely. understand it. So he stands there that day. How can I do this by myself? Well, he can't. It's a rhetorical question. Prepare for yourselves wise and understanding men. This needs to be done before they cross the river. Known among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads, this has already been done. I took the heads of your tribes, men wise and well-known, and I made them heads over you, leaders over thousands and hundreds and fifties, and leaders over tens and officers over your tribes. So they are reminded here in the re-giving of the law, if you will, of the importance of the division of responsibility and leadership. They're also reminded that Moses himself did it. And God, you may recall, more than once stamped his approval upon Moses and his leadership. So if it came from Moses, it was coming from Yahweh through Moses to the people. And uh, this this would settle the issue. Then finally here, uh, basic training for judges because they're going to have disputes that need to be settled. So beginning in verse 16. And I commanded your judges at that time, saying, hear disputes between uh, your brothers and judge justly between a man and his brother and between his litig- litigant. The, there, is gonna, there will be matters of litigation, matters of law, matters of disagreement, and there's going, there are going to have to be judges to judge over them. You shall not favor persons in judgment. Rather, you shall hear the small just as the great You shall not fear any man for the judgment is Elohim's. And the case that is too difficult to you, Moses says, bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time, all the things that you should do. So among the final instructions here, the reminder of the importance of justice. Sometimes there are issues that that can be argued that that seem to be confusing that have to be dealt with. Moses knows this. And so this is taken care of. And he's he's reminding his people that they're all equal under the law. That the, the great man, the small man, doesn't matter. They come in litigation and... These people come in judgment so that their judgment can be made. And when it's made in the way that Elohim has set it up, then it's Elohim's judgment. Uh, And finally, the final appeal uh, before they cross the river would be uh, to Moses. So this is the next thing in reminding them in the second giving of the law or the second giving of instructions Uh, to remind them of the importance of equal justice under the law. You see, you may remember, (laughs) maybe you won't, the last words of Spock when he said, as he sacrificed himself to fall into some unknown planet and there die. Speaking to Captain Kirk, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's not what a justice system is built on. Suppose, suppose your way of life or what you could do or couldn't do was left up to the majority of people. Think about that. It, it wouldn't be Right. Justice is an individual thing. The importance of the individual. This this is the foundation of the justice system. Of of the people of Israel. That's what he is saying here. Don't favor persons in judgment. Hear the small. Just as you hear the great. And don't fear any man. Because this is a thing that comes down in favor of one person or another. And. Supposedly, you know, the likeness of Moses is carved into the Supreme Court building, the 10 commandments. And supposedly this is our system of justice as well, which is a pattern of the way heaven says justice should be meted out. Well, we'll stop here. We'll pick up there. God willing next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your instruction and your direction, for the examples that you've given to us in the Old Testament. May our lives and our directions be enriched, even corrected because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.